entrepreneur shares was one of the first thematic investment strategies, and we were the very first in entrepreneurship, innovation, and disruption. We have over 30 years of academic research that we developed at Babson College, the number one school in entrepreneurship. And from this, we developed a proprietary entrepreneur factor, which demonstrates how investors can outperform peer benchmarks over time. Our model works best during declining interest rate environments such as now, and we have two ETFs investors can follow. One is ENTR, which is U.S. large caps, and one ETF is ERSX, which focuses on non-U.S. small caps. ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. And if you've been listening to the podcast over the past uh, several weeks, you know I've been winding down 2023, basically recapping everything that's happened in the world of ETFs this year. But Dave, Dave is a financial futurist, which means he doesn't look backwards. He only looks forward, or at least uh, he should only be looking forward. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this week. We're going to look ahead to 2024 and find out what Dave has on his uh, ETF radar over the next year or so. And I'll tell you, Dave likes to keep me uh, a little bit off kilter, so I honestly have no idea where we might be heading with this conversation. But what I do know is this will most definitely be fun, and uh, Dave is always insightful, and we'll both probably be wrong on any predictions we make. Uh, I'm kidding. Dave usually gets this stuff right. I'm the one who usually gets this stuff wrong, uh, but Dave will join me here in just a minute. Now, also joining me this week will be Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer at Valkyrie, who, of course, is one of the uh, 13, 13 entrants into the spot Bitcoin ETF race that appears to be nearing the finish line. Now, I said appears to be. Who knows what will actually uh, happen? Maybe I'll make another bad prediction on that with Dave. But uh, this should be an interesting conversation. Stephen is going to give us a firsthand look at what's going on behind the scenes of that race, including what they're hearing from the SEC right now and what issues still need to be resolved to uh, actually get these things to market. The other aspect we'll discuss is really just the competitive dynamics around these ETFs if and when the SEC finally gets comfortable. Because if you think about this, Valkyrie is in a unique spot in that they're a smaller issuer, which can certainly make things more difficult. 
but they're also an issuer with some uh, crypto street cred, which I think might be able to help out here. So we'll find out how uh, Valkyrie is planning on stepping into the spot Bitcoin ETF Terradome. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Dave Nottig. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, I hope you didn't uh, drop your crystal ball this morning because we're going to need that. <laughs> I'll do my best, Nate. I'll do my best. You know me. I'm always thinking about the future, but I'm rooted in the past. I, I love it. Um, okay, so last week I did spend the entire podcast looking back on everything that's transpired in the world of ETFs this year. And so, uh, as I mentioned at the top, given that you are a financial futurist, we're going to peer into that uh, crystal ball of yours and find out what may happen in 2024. And so you provided me with a list of, uh, I'd say, four or five predictions here. Or I should say, at a minimum, these are key areas you're watching. And so let's go through these, and I'll I'll tell you, um, honestly, I would prefer to skip the first one. But uh, (laughs) we we can't avoid this topic uh, next year, and that's that 2024 is an election year. God help us all. Um, <laughs> but look, I, uh, I I like your take on this. It's sort of like a prediction that you don't have a prediction because you say, uh, "Good luck figuring out how to position a portfolio around the election." So explain that, and then you also have what I thought was an interesting ETF angle here. Well, so every time, like this is not the first time I've gone into a conference during the primary season, right? So every four years for the last 12 years, this will be the third time we've gone into an election cycle. This year we'll be at the exchange uh, down in Florida, obviously, and we'll be talking about politics. It's impossible not to. We've got Amy Walters from the Cook Political Report. We've got other folks on stage. Politics isn't my jam. I'm not going to wade into that. However, every time we've had these election cycles since I started investing in the late 80s, inevitably you read all these headlines about what a blank victory means for your portfolio. It's one of the most predictable articles ever written in in financial journalism. Uh, And they're always basically wrong. And what they usually are is stuff around policy, regulatory changes. This, This person will be good for oil, this person will be good for clean energy, whatever. Um, Just assume all of it's baked in. None of it ever quite pans out the way everybody thinks it does. Trying to get smarter than the polling numbers does not actually work. Here's an actual prediction, though, that I 100% know that you're going to see. There is going to be a bull market on people trying to sell you on their product based on how you think you're going to vote, whether that's uh, you know, the products from Strive or Dems, the Democratic Large Cap Corp. I mean, we now actually have specific products named after parties. Uh, I would avoid all of this. I don't think any of it is playable. I don't think these are headlines that you can make money on. Uh, if it's your only source of entertainment, God bless. But I really suggest that most investors try to ignore 
pre-positioning month by month their portfolio for the election. I love that take on the ETF side because, uh, look, I, I, I love ETF wholesalers. I know a lot of them, but uh, they have a very difficult job in that they have to figure out a way to get advisors and, and I guess, investors' attention. And, uh, you know, what better way to do that than with a political hook? Now, I, I think you know, I always say, and this is pretty cliche, don't mix politics with portfolios, right? That's, that's always a bad idea. But it can be tough. There's going to be a lot of headlines swirling. You mentioned, you know, different policies and, and potential regulatory changes. And I think it's difficult for some advisors and investors not to look at the political landscape and, and think, hey, how should I position my portfolio? And, and- Look, of course it matters, right? I'm not suggesting that literally whoever is leading the developed world doesn't matter. Of course it matters long-term to your portfolio. My point is trying to game whether the market's going to go up or down or this sector's going to go up or down based on the vagaries of polling is incredibly dumb. I just don't think that that's a smart way to think about things. By all means, if you have opinions about whether your guy is better for your economic well-being or the planet, you should like do your research and go vote. I'm encouraging people to do that. My point is, don't mix that with the individual investments you're making, uh, you know, month by month. Okay, so let me ask you this, then. I'm going to try to get you riled up a little bit here today. <laughs> um, what about ESG ETFs? Because you, you, you know, you and I have discussed how politicized that space has become, rightly or wrongly. It, it just has, right? It's highly yeah, polarizing. Yeah. And with all of the potential uh, political fireworks that I, I think we'll see next year, do you think that's good for ESG ETFs, or is it going to make things even more difficult in that space? Because it has been a trying year overall for ESG ETFs. Yeah, I, I think the thing to remember here is that the United States market opinion about ESG actually matters very little to the global capital flows around ESG. Uh, so, yeah, Congress is hauling Vanguard in, apparently. We got that announcement yesterday. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, to talk about decarbonization. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, you know, and, and by all means, if what we're going to talk about is things like who's voting, I'm, yes, those are conversations we should have. You know me, Nate. For years I've been tell, talking about how much I think people should be directly involved in voting their shares and aren't. Uh, so that's all great. But in terms of things like are people going to continue to throw money into clean energy and carbon transition funds, uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, while this was a down year on flows for specifically ESG ETFs listed in the United States, that is an incredibly tiny bucket of targeted funds. Uh, if you look at the flows globally, still floods going into clean energy carbon transition coming from sovereign wealth funds, coming from major institutions. Uh, if you look at, at ESG that's not in these sort of very high-profile package products, it's all had positive flow years. And if you look at the performance, even like the, the funds we would have might – you know, maybe talked about greenwashing, sort of the least ESG versions of pouring beta indexes, all that performed this year. So it's very hard to say ESG is, like, dead. Uh, in fact, we have a session of exchange basically titled <laughs> Not Dead Yet, like Monty Python. Uh, it, U.S. investors may have soured on this for a moment. It's not going anywhere. Okay, your uh, next prediction involves something that will probably be the biggest story in ETFs, at least in the first quarter of next year, unless there's a huge uh, rug pull by the SEC, which 
Um, as I alluded to at the top, I can't completely rule that out. And that's the debut of Spot Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> so what are you going to talk about, Nate? I know. I know. What is your job? <laughs> it's it's going to be uh, extremely difficult. Okay, so your prediction is you are expecting these to finally come to market. Sure. And yeah. probably spot Ether ETFs, too. And uh, I, I do want you to comment on that. But I felt like really the thrust of what you provided me was that while you see these ETFs as progress, there are some significant issues that still need to be solved for in the crypto space, namely on the regulatory side of the equation. So, so talk about that. Yeah, so look, having Bitcoin and ETH spot ETFs, is a critical bridge function, right? It makes it easier to move money from the traditional economy to the decentralized economy. The challenge is that that last thing, the decentralized economy, still has no regulatory structure. So we may have gotten a product or two approved, you know, Bitcoin and ETH, but to do the really interesting stuff that decentralized finance promises we can do, you need a little bit more than that. You need a comprehensive digital assets structure to work underneath. Uh, which we're starting to see developed around the rest of the de developed world. We're still not anywhere near doing that in the United States. So, yeah, this allows uh, U.S. investors who want to trade a U.S.-listed product to get access to this decentralized currency economy, which I think is very cool and has lots of potential long-term applications. But that economy is still going to get developed outside the United States, barring some sort of real regulation here in the U.S. So it's a step in the right direction. You know, obviously there'll be a lot of discussion around it in Fuhrer and flows, and it'll go up and it'll go down, and we'll keep talking about it forever. But the real meat here is when we can get into the promise of uh, really replacing some institutional functionality with what we could do with DeFi. On the regulatory side, if I recall correctly, and this goes back to what we were talking about, obviously with next year being an election year, I feel like maybe a year or two ago you talked about how you're not so sure that regulatory framework can really be put into place until after the 2024 election. Yeah. Do I recall that correctly? And maybe yeah, elaborate yeah, on I, it. I, I still believe that. I think that uh, one way or another, uh, when we're sitting here next year, uh, we will have crossed a bit of a partisan divide, right? Regardless of whoever is getting elected, chances are they ain't getting elected again, right? <laughs> People right. Are so we're going to have some sort of phase shift in American leadership in Congress and in the White House over the next five years, right, if we get past the election cycle. And that's when I think we can have the real conversation about what does it mean to create a digitized economy uh, and have, have the actual interesting conversations without just, like, creating these fear, uncertainty, and denial, you know, headlines around, you know, is crypto being used to fund terrorism? Is it, you know responsible for human trafficking? Is it boiling the planet? I mean, we have these silly arguments that show such little grasp of what's really possible with this technology. I, I don't think we can get there until we get past this partisan divide, and I think that that takes another cycle. Before we move on, going back to the spot Bitcoin ETFs, and obviously I'm going to have a much more in-depth conversation here in a bit with Valkyrie's uh, Stephen McClurg, but you and I were chatting offline about... Um, how, how would I explain this? You know, obviously I'm out on Twitter, X, you know, tweeting every headline, everything that happens around this race. Our, our good friend Eric Balchunas over uh, uh, at Bloomberg and James Safer, they're doing the same. And uh, I think it was around Grayscale where I, I was 
discussing, well, you know, maybe they, they won't be able to come to market at the same time as everybody else. And your response to me was basically, you know, look, the, the SEC is a bureaucracy. You know, the, you have a bunch of overworked um, staff workers that are trying to get this thing to the finish line. There's not some big conspiracy going on behind the scenes with any of this stuff. They're just trying to do their job and ultimately bring these products to market. Would you be comfortable talking a little bit more about that? Because I know you, you've kind yeah, of given me a yeah. hard time because I, I tweet about this so much. Uh, that that maybe we've kind of lost the plot here on on what's actually yeah. going on. I you know where I get particularly annoyed is when everybody reads uh, you know people who are really approaching the SEC filing system for the first time because they are interested in Bitcoin, assuming that things like the date on a document is somehow like written in stone uh, that that like it has some meaning. Uh, and I, I think it's really important to point out that the administrative state, which does lots of powerful things, uh, is is not something that rolls back up to Congress for every decision, right? So Congress made the SEC happen by passing laws, and then the SEC has largely just been given mandate by Congress ever since. So things like what is the filing date on this and whether or not that is, it means anything, these things slip continuously. Uh, we could have, if you told me tomorrow that we don't hear a peep about a Bitcoin ETF for six months, I would say, okay, that is within the realm of possibility. The SEC could go completely dark on this. You all would be writing headlines about how it's a travesty and everybody needs to get sued again. But that's the point. The only thing you could do would be sue the SEC again and say, why aren't you doing your job? Uh, and in that case, they probably lose because not doing your job is by itself not enough. You have to be disparately not doing your job. You have to be favoring one person versus another. Uh, and so these these ideas that somehow there's a backroom deal going on and BlackRock's got the inside line because they know Gary or they know some staff member who has power, my experience in 30 years is that's just not how the process works. There's some clerk with stuff piled on his desk and they're having meetings saying, okay, we've been through this, we've been through this, we've been through this, what do y'all want to do? They're just figuring it out. It's just a bunch of people trying to get something done. But do you not think that process can be politicized at all? I mean, do you think Gary Gensler, for example, is completely neutral? And, and I would also add to what you were just saying. I mean, the SEC has been sued, and they've lost uh, to, to Grayscale and, and some others in the crypto world. And some people would argue the... Um, you know, look, the, the legal rationale is clear, but the, the reason the SEC got themselves into that situation to begin with was because perhaps they were taking more of a political view on the crypto space. Yeah, um, I, I, I think calling it a political view is difficult because I do. Do I believe that Biden is personally calling Gary Gensler and telling him what to do? No. And if you do, then I don't think you really understand how the world works. Um, that, you know, are there discussions going on between congressmen and SEC staff people about the pros and cons of crypto? Of course, every single day, because congressmen in particular are the ones that are trying to get their constituencies' ideas across. And we know that. We have pro and anti-crypto uh, congressmen, and they are, in fact, lobbying there. So, of course, politics is involved. But let's also be really clear. Reasonable people can disagree on a lot of this stuff. And while you and I may agree on one side of it, that doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with us is somehow a disingenuous idiot. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. 
I, I agree with that. But can, can you imagine if we get into uh, early January? January 10th is the, the ARC uh, spot Bitcoin ETF deadline date, and the SEC disapproves these things. Can, can you imagine the frenzy? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that we are headed for the rug pull of all time. I mean, it would be entertaining to write about for a week or two. <laughs> uh, but I don't. But uh, but again. Put yourself in the position of people who are just doing a job. Would you have really spun up your staff for the last three months reviewing S-1 filings, fine printing the 19B4s from each exchange, and then with, with the intent all along of just rug pulling this thing in the first quarter? No, that's not how most businesses work. So when you get six or seven people saying, yeah, they called us and told us we had to cross the T's on the S-1, I think you can effectively read the tea leaves on that. I don't think it takes a genius. Yeah, I agree. And for the record, I believe that these things will be approved uh, yeah, around that time. I do think that an interesting story to watch is whether or not uh, GBTC will be able to uplist or convert. I think that could be that could be delayed for uh, reasons of peak or not. Like that's one of those cases where when we're sitting here deciding, you know, at some table about what, who's going to go first or whether we're going to treat things differently based on how they came in or who's filing them. You know, that's one case where I could see there's enough distinction on GBTC that it could get could be treated differently. Whether that's pro or con, we'll see, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that it's con. All right, your next prediction is uh, probably a pretty good prediction in just about every year, but I, I like this one because it comes on the heels of perhaps 2023's biggest story. And so you believe active ETFs will likely slow down and underperform on the whole. And I would say that active ETFs were probably the most covered topic on ETF Prime this year, right? Well, I guess besides five Bitcoin ETFs, right? But um, why, why do you think momentum might be slowing around active ETFs? Well, we're starting to run out of filings, uh, for one, right? So if we look, if we look at the, the products that have come to market this year, particularly from traditional active players like a Fidelity, uh, you know, Dimensional, PIMCO, uh, uh, all the best ideas are pretty much getting into the ETF wrapper this year, right? So, like, literally, PIMCO's, I think it's PYLD, which is their best ideas fund. It's, it's literally run by the CIO. Um, that's now trading and, you know, get, catching a bid. You know, Fidelity's F-Bond is now trading and catching a bid. So, like, we've got a lot of, I would call, pretty high-profile active ETFs out there. So I'm, it's not like there's a giant pile of those things waiting. So we'll continue to see conversions for sure, uh, and we'll continue to see growth. What I don't think we're going to see is another year of like 20, 25% AUM flow directly into the active products. A lot of that, that big number was because of options overlay strategies and equity income products. Um, I think that those are going to cool off a little bit. I think the premiums that you can collect from those ball writing strategies are going to come down. Uh, and, and the other side that's a more traditional stock picking active like ARC, uh, you know, ARC, let, let's be clear, ARC had a heck of a year in performance. It hasn't translated into tens of billions of dollars in positive inflows. Uh, and I think investors have sort of realized that, you know, ho holy cow, uh, you know, an 81% drawdown is a lot, right? And that's what, if you peak, you know, peak to trough ARC over the last couple of years, that's what you experience. Um, so I think that that's going to be tricky. Um, I think that the power of the Magnificent Seven and the power of sort of momentum, you know, the momentum effect of uh, cap-weighted indexing is going to continue to make it very difficult for active managers to really eke out apples to apples outperformance. 
I don't want to get sidetracked here. You mentioned the um, options overlay strategies. I think the poster child obviously being JEPI, right, the uh, J.P. Morgan Equity yeah. Premium Income ETF. Um, did, did you see there was this article this morning in the Financial Times where the gist of it was with the proliferation of these products and, and, and basically selling vol that it's having an impact on uh, something like the VIX, Oh, of course. It, yeah. Do you think that's real? I mean, is this is this a situation oh, yeah, no, where ETFs bad. are actually impacting the underlying? Because we've spent a, a large chunk of our career arguing how the tail isn't wagging the the dog here, you, you know, on ETFs, right? We've seen all these fear mongering stories, but it sounds like maybe you think this is a situation where the rise of these prices yeah, is impacting. Yeah, and and look, we, this is pretty much this is very trackable, right? So folks like Tier One Alpha um, track this stuff on a day to day basis. Uh, it's not just ETFs, right? So equity income as a strategy or covered call rating, uh, selling mall, whatever we want to call it. These kinds of strategies exist enormously popular in the hedge fund community. Tons of mutual funds tracking them. Um, you know, and they all have basically similar qualities, which is they're out there collecting premiums based on owning the underlying. Um, and there's only so much of that to go around, right? The dealers on the other side have to be buying that, right? Somebody has to be, like, writing the check for that. They then have to reposition. All of this goes into the overall sort of dealer book that has to get hedged every day. And what we've seen for the last year or two really is that the pinning effects around specific strikes, around uh, where dealers are particularly over their skis on this stuff really impact the local volatility on a day-to-day basis around certain strike points. So hmm. I, I think it's inarguable that this is affecting markets and market structure. Is that good or bad? No, it just means that sometimes a trade gets a little long in the tooth, and when those things unwind, it can be a little painful. Now, I'm not saying that to make people panic. Uh, I don't think Jeffy is headed for some giant drawdown. I'm just saying that you're paying something for that. I mean, remember, Jeppy may have had a heck of a year, but the queues are up 50%, right? So your your opportunity cost is enormous. Yeah, I expect the pendulum to swing back the other way in this space. You, you may recall, we've talked about this. I think that entire covered call uh, ETF space is a bubble. I, I think too, too many products have come to market. Well, it's, it's worked, right? So, like, depending on what your perspective sort of. is, it has been it has been a trade that works, but it is not a trade that works in perpetuity. But Dave, I mean, if you look at Jeppy's performance versus the S and P five hundred this year, last I checked, Jeppy was trailing by some ten percent. And of course, it's not designed yeah. to track the S and P five hundred. This is my point: is yeah. opportunity costs are enormous, and collecting you know a, an above inflation level of income off of your equity portfolio may sound like a good idea when the equity market's up six eight percent. Uh, but when but when the you know the mag sevens up sixty or fifty or forty. That's, a, that's an enormous opportunity cost. Yeah, I agree. And all it's going to take is, uh, you know, a nice 25% drawdown in equities where people see, wait, I actually have equity risk with these products? You mean these aren't just like fixed income <laughs> bond ETFs? I think that's going to get people's attention uh, because these, these have been marketed as, oh, this is a, a more defensive way to earn income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think wait, people are going to be surprised. Wait, to be fair, it, it is. Like I said, I don't think any of these products is headed for some sort of catastrophe. The products are very well designed and do what they say on the tin, uh, and the actively managed ones are run by teams that I've met and I think are very good at their jobs. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to spread 
any fear whatsoever. I just don't think this is an obvious easy money trade anymore. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, that these are well-constructed products, and there's, there's fantastic teams behind them. What I'm saying is, from the end investor's perspective, and even some advisors, I think that they have, some have viewed these almost as fixed-income replacements. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm talking about, that they're going to be surprised when we do get a big drawdown how these things react. Um, all right, the last prediction that you gave me was around ETFs moving to T plus 1 settlement, which that happens in May, right? ETFs are going from T plus 2 to T plus 1 yep. settlement. And your prediction here, <laughs> this is perfect when we talk about fear-mongering, is that maybe there will be a little bit of fear-mongering around this, but you're telling everyone to remain calm, Correct. Yeah, so this is like the this is like the worst kept <laughs> secret in all of finance, right? It's like Y two K all over again. Uh, yes, there's a big software change that has to happen, just like in Y two K. Yes, everybody's known this is coming for literally years at this point. The DTCC has been running a daily test window on this forever at this point, uh, and and effectively nobody who's actually doing this work is particularly concerned about it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's a complete non-event. Uh, luckily, this is going to happen around Memorial Day, so Canada is going to do it a day early because they're Canada, so they always have to be first. Uh, so they'll do it on May 27th. We'll do it on May 28th. I think I have the dates right. Uh, and, and most likely, absolutely nothing will happen and nobody will notice. However, in April and May, expect to see a lot of terrifying headlines about how the U.S. market structure is going to break, and it won't. The thing that I like about this, and I talked about this about a month ago on the podcast, is this does put ETFs on equal footing with mutual funds in terms of settlement times. And this isn't some huge deal, but I think just eliminating some of the confusion in the marketplace, I can tell you in talking with investors, when uh, they look at how trade settles, or trade settles, sometimes there is confusion around this. And, and this will line them up with mutual funds. And the other thing, it allows investors, if they want to access their cash on a uh, a, a sale, for for example, they can do so quicker. Yeah, so it, it is generally going to be pro-investor. It removes some counterparty risk, not that that's really ever been an issue for most ETF investors. Uh, it removes a little bit of uh, you know time lag. Yes, it shifts some of those burdens to other parts of the system. There are no free lunches, right? So if you're a custodian, if you run a back shop somewhere, yes, there you had to do some work, and maybe you're taking a little bit of trade financing risk if you're trading internationally because your European stocks aren't settling at T1, but your U.S. ETF is. So it's not like there's nothing that's going to go on here, and plenty of programmers are losing their minds over this, but it's also extremely well understood and not something I'm particularly worried about. It's all part of the inevitable push towards tokenized clearing uh, which will happen, you know, in 10 to 20 years. <laughs> I agree, once we get the regulatory uh, stuff ironed yep. out. Um, all right, a few minutes left before I let you go. I know you're not much of a uh, market prediction type person, and, and neither am I, right? I think most people know that. I always say my crystal ball is broken. However, I do think it's a useful exercise to at least consider what may happen in the markets every year. And I believe you saw this, but last week I posed the question out on uh, Twitter, or X, that if you could choose one ETF for 2024, what would that be? And I didn't get a, a, an enormous response on this, but I did want to share with you a few ETFs that caught my attention, if, if you'll indulge me. I thought maybe we could just spend like a minute or two on, on each of these. Sure. Um, so I, the first one, I guess, that, that jumped out at me was TLT. Uh, several people responded with TLT, the iShares 20-plus year Treasury Bond ETF. That was obviously one of the biggest ETF stories this year in, in that it took in nearly $23 billion, even though it's down over 2%. And, 
And looking out to 2024, clearly this would be a play on rates coming back in on the long end. My question for you is, do you think those types of monster flows will carry over into 2024? No, I don't. I think this is going to be a much more normalized year. Um, I don't. I don't think that we're chasing a, a giant packet of returns by getting the curve just right. If anything, I think that uh, this could actually be a fairly boring year, right? I mean, I think the, the average street projection is for not really going into a reception, recession, you know, some sort of soft landing version. Um, I believe the current uh, markets would suggest we're headed for one rate cut next year. That's all pretty normal and average stuff. And with so much focus being on the election, I suspect that the market's going to take care of itself. If I was picking one one ticker for next year, it would probably be something like uh, Corey Hoffman's new return stack, stocks and bonds, because mm-hmm. I think that both markets are going to be just fine. And so if you're really just trying to juice that, do a little leverage. Yeah, not investment advice. My issue with TLT remains the same as it was even when rates were were lower. And I guess it was an easier call when when rates were lower. Just that the risk-return profile of something like this still doesn't make sense to me. So much duration. Yeah, I mean, taking on that duration risk for the the yield, and especially given the the fact that you can get that yield elsewhere. I mean, if you really think things are going to fall off a cliff and, and we're heading for a doomsday economic scenario, I get it. But, you know, outside of that, I, I just don't – the risk-reward doesn't make sense to me. Um, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. All right, uh, next one, small-cap stocks. So an ETF like IJR, the iShares Core S&P, uh, small-cap ETF, or SPSM, the Spider Portfolio S&P 600 small-cap ETF. What I, would, what I would say here is small-caps have, have obviously underperformed this year. But I am seeing a lot more discussion around how this segment is undervalued and uh, it could be poised to, to sort of catch back up to large caps. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, this is one of those places where I actually think active management may may hold some sway next year. So it, it, the, the fund that I look at in the space that I keep shaking my head about is ADUV, which is the Advantage U.S. Small Cap Value Fund, which is actively managed. Uh, you know, has, uh, I don't know what, $8 billion in it or something ridiculous already and has just crushed, you know, over, over any meaningful multi-year period. So I wouldn't be surprised for some of those DFA or Avanta small cap products to, to really outperform. A lot of the small cap wins seem to be around getting those little edge cases right, and that's the kind of quote-unquote active um, that both Advantis and DFA are doing here. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I've seen a lot of discussion just around how if you look at the small cap space, clearly you have a lot of companies that are not profitable, and you know, could an active manager come in and do a better job of, of sifting through the, the companies out there to, to find you know, better quality holdings? Now, I guess if small caps really started uh, running, maybe you want to be in the growthier stuff, but uh, I agree with you. I think I, I can see active management really shining here. I do, I do have to say, though, it's like it's difficult to sit here and talk about, like, yeah, ABUV has been killing it, blah, blah, blah. And, and, yes, those things are true on a relative basis. But, again, I feel like it's really important to point out what a weird year this is. Like, here we've got small cap value up 15%, which is a huge year for small cap value. And yet, look at the cues. Like, yeah. you know, right. look, at the, look at the top of the cap chart. And, and like, you know, we're talking about a 35% performance gap in 11 months. It's insane. All right, last one I have for you. You mentioned Avantis, so it's another ticker from them. Ticker AVGV, which is the Avantis All Equity Markets Value ETF, which this is actually an ETF of ETFs. 
But I, I like this one because it combines two areas that we keep hearing about every single year, and they both keep disappointing, and that's value investing and international uh, exposure. So my question for you is, is, it, is now the time to jump into both of these? We hear this every year. Well, so I think value is tricky because there's so much focus on growth momentum, and the index flows are really going to chase that. So I think the, the growth value thing, I think, is a little bit difficult. On international, I 100% think it, it's been on a bit of a tear in terms of flows this year. You know, back up to something around 20% of flows, both on uh, the bond and the equity side. That's that's sort of appropriate for an average U.S. investor. Like, that's above where home bias sits. So that means people are putting more money to international. I think that makes a ton of sense, particularly, honestly, in an election year with the amount of geopolitical chaos we've got going around the world. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's the time to hold up in the U.S. and, and pretend that Europe doesn't exist, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think that international exposure makes a ton of sense going into 2024. Well, Dave, we'll have to leave it there. Such a uh, fun conversation this week. I always love hearing your perspective on what might be around the corner. It gets me thinking outside the box a little bit, which I think I definitely need. But I hope you well, understand. Talk about AI, Dave. Uh, I know. I, I, you know what? I For some reason, I'm just fatigued on that topic. And it's not look, like I'm, I'm using chat, GBT, and, and Dolly and all that. It's, it's amazing. What's happening technologically there? Is, is truly mind-boggling. I think maybe just the frenzy in the markets earlier this year just it fatigued me on the topic a little bit. Totally but, fair. But it's, it's here to stay, no question about it. And I would say anybody, especially in the advisory space, I mean, I, I'm an advisor, if you're not paying attention to what's going on here, you're going to be behind the curve. I mean, you know that better than anybody. If, if, if yeah. you're not looking at how this is going to impact your work, I, I think you're missing the boat. But, um, Dave, I hope you and your family enjoy the uh, holidays, and thank you for joining Happy me. Happy holidays to you too, Nate. That was Dave Nottig, financial futurist at Vetify. Ready to position for 2024? With an uncertain market environment on the horizon, positioning for 2024 has never been more critical or more challenging. On December 14th, Vetify is gathering top experts and thought leaders to unpack the market outlook. Registration for the Market Outlook Symposium is free. Register at etftrends.com slash webcasts slash market dash outlook dash symposium. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you will gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at Exchange. ExchangeETF.com. I'm having trouble trying to sleep. I'm counting sheep, but running out. Time ticks by Still I try No rest for cops in my mind On my own, here we go 
I am now joined by Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer at Valkyrie, who currently offers two ETFs, about $75 million in assets. That includes a Bitcoin and Ethereum futures ETF, along with a Bitcoin miners ETF. But not only that, Valkyrie is, of course, an entrant in the uh, highly publicized spot Bitcoin ETF race. And Stephen is now on the line with me from Nashville. Stephen, welcome back to the uh, podcast. It's been a while. Hey, Nate. It's so good to hear from you. It's, uh, man, I, I feel like I haven't seen you in two years. Is that right? Well, you know what? It's so funny because I was looking back, and you did last join me in, I believe, June of 2021, which I'm sure you'll recall. That's actually right after the SEC delayed a decision on the Valkyrie Bitcoin ETF, which you had filed in January of that year. And, boy, here we are. We're still here. Still no spot Bitcoin ETF. Uh, and so I, I'm curious, I mean, what has the past two years been like over at Valkyrie as you've been working on this thing? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's been a, a roller coaster, I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, the, you know for, for, first of all, we filed the Bitcoin spot ETF. And as we were working through it and we, we, we first got rejected, we thought, well, maybe, um, maybe the SEC will approve future. So we... We, uh, we confidentially filed a, uh, a, a futures product, and then sure enough, Gensley went on and said, hey, we will uh, look at Bitcoin futures. So uh, we, we were able to get that launched that October, and uh, so, so that, was, that was a great year. The market was going up. We launched that ETF. We launched a couple of other ones, and then, uh, and then of course, the next year, we had the, the massive bear run. Uh, so, so that's the uh, that's the other side of the roller coaster that's been uh, fun to navigate. <laughs> All right, so let's um, start by talking about where everything currently stands. So, I believe we've now seen just about all of the prospective spot Bitcoin ETF issuers filing what are called amended S1, so amended registration statements. That's obviously been in response to various SEC requests. I, I actually saw a uh, report from Reuters last week where they said that discussions between the SEC and ETF issuers had advanced to, quote-unquote, key technical details. And so Reuters was indicating that's probably a good sign that we're getting closer to the finish line. But let's just set the table here. So where does everything currently stand? Do you think we're getting closer to the finish line? And, and I'll, I'll offer this for listeners. Um, obviously, there's only so much that you can tell us right now, uh, Stephen, because th these are live filings. So you obviously need to stay compliant. I, w I wanted to offer that up. But what can you tell us? Well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you what I can tell you is that, you know, nobody knows when Jesus is returning, right? So, um, uh, same, same thing with Bitcoin spot. We have, we have no, no, no issuers really know, um, at this point in time. But what we do know is that we are having very detailed conversations with the SEC on, on structure and, uh, and we're, and we're getting very close, I think. Uh, so whether it's through the exchange, um, filed by CB4s, and having comments around comments and conversations around that, or by the uh, the S ones, or in some cases S threes, um, working through comments, um, you know the SEC really does understand, you know the uh, you know Bitcoin how it works. Uh, I, I know a lot of people are frustrated, but at the same time, you know their job is to make sure that proper disclosures are in place and the capital markets are running efficient, and they're asking all the right questions. Um, so uh, I, I think they're doing their jobs well. 
and uh, we're, we're we're at a point where they're I think they're very they're working very hard to make sure that we get something. Again, I don't know exactly what you can speak to, but as it pertains to those conversations with the SEC, I've seen a lot of discussion around cash versus in-kind creations and redemptions, and that the SEC prefers cash at this point in time. Uh, is that correct? And I'm curious if you have a preference on this. And it also might be good, Stephen, if you don't mind, to just explain what this all means at a very high level, in case some people aren't familiar with the back-end plumbing here. Yeah, sure. So, so really, the conversations around cash and in-kind, um, on, the, on the one hand, when you have an in-kind create, it, does, it is a little bit more efficient uh, in the world of ETFs. Um, you know, you can have both cash or in-kind. And, and, and essentially, the way that works is, you know, let, let, let's take the S&P, for instance. Uh, if you're buying a, an S&P tracking ETF, um, you know, uh, APs and market makers can say, well, I'm going to give you cash and we're going to live on the, you know, an ETF, which is a basket of equities, or I have a basket of equities and I'm going to deliver that to you in kind and I want the ETF. Uh, it's a little bit more tax efficient that way. It's a little bit more, um, um, you know, it, it, it's got a little bit less drag on, 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 on price that way as well. So, so that's, that's really what, what in kind is. On the cash side, I think there's something like Bitcoin at the moment. It's just a little bit more simple for the SEC to, uh, to, to understand because, you know, really what's, you know, there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of market makers out there that can actually transact in Bitcoin. They can only transact in cash or securities. And broker dealer rules also restrict uh, a lot of market makers from, from, um, trading in, in non-securities, and Bitcoin is in a security. So I think what the SEC is looking at is, well, you know, we want as many market makers out there as possible because that, that helps to make efficient markets. And if, you know, FINRA broker-dealer rules prevents them from trading and transacting in Bitcoin unless it's in some kind of synthetic method, then we just want as many participants as possible, so cash is the way to go. Um, I don't think that there's been a firm decision there yet, but, uh, it, you know, the way that I look at it, I, I think the SEC will end up going with cash, and, and I think that's probably the best thing at the moment until some of the Finland broker dealer rules are changed. Yeah, I could see that, too. I could see where these products debut uh, using cash and then obviously evolve as everybody gets more comfortable and the ecosystem develops to, to move towards in-kind creations. Uh, another question I have is, do you think the uh, Coinbase surveillance sharing agreements still matter in all this? So I know the 19B4 filed by NASDAQ to list and trade your prospective ETF. That actually has language regarding a Coinbase surveillance sharing agreement. But I noticed a recent filing from a competing prospective spot Bitcoin ETF, which would list on SIBO. That doesn't have that specific language. And I don't believe any of the NYSE 19B4 filings have that language either. And, and so my, my question again is, does a Coinbase surveillance sharing agreement matter in, in this entire thing? Because I believe Grayscale would, would say that it doesn't, that the CME Bitcoin futures market and the existing surveillance sharing agreements that CME has with the exchanges are enough to suffice here. So, so what can you tell us on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, I actually, I would say when, when, when we filed, you know, obviously we're working with NASDAQ, and when, when we first filed, 
and began working on the surveillance agreement, we thought that it would uh, alleviate one of the issues uh, that the SEC brought up in the famous Dolly and Bloss letter um, talking about market manipulation. So, you know, us and Coinbase and NASDAQ and BlackRock, you know, we, we, all, we all thought that this would be a, a really interesting take to, um, you know, to overcome that. Um, I, I do think it's mattered a lot less, but, you know, and, and I'll tell you one of the reasons why I thought it mattered so much, you know, earlier this year is because, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a former bond trader and, and traded bonds and, and, and fixed income ETFs. And, um, you know, one of the issues that we had when we first, when we lost some of the first actively managed fixed income ETFs was also surveillance and market manipulation because, you know, uh, bonds don't, don't trade like equities. Uh, they don't trade every day. And when um, we, we got, you know, when, when we had to trade bonds within these ETF portfolios, um, you know, we had to prove pricing and then we had to report those pricing to make sure that there wasn't, you know, any, any, any type of manipulation there. Um, so it was the way that we overcame it, and that was back in 2012. Um, but, but, it, but, you know, Bitcoin is pretty um, transparent. It's, it's easy to see pricing. So, uh, so that surveillance agreement has, has come to mean less and less. Okay, so you don't see this potentially being a deciding factor. I, I know, and I, I'm part of the problem here, some of these conspiracy theorists <laughs> out on Twitter or X talking about how, let's say, NASDAQ has the surveillance sharing agreement in place, but NYSE doesn't, that maybe that would allow the NASDAQ products to come to market first. You don't think it's going to get to that point where it's some sort of deciding factor? Well, I don't think it will anymore. Although I will say back, back in April, May, June, I, I, I did believe that it would. But uh, it, it, it has kind of fallen out. All right, so as you look at everything else here, are there any other uh, major hang-ups that you think the SEC has right now? And I guess along with that, which this is probably related, is all of the back-end infrastructure actually ready to go for these products? Like, if a spot Bitcoin ETF launched tomorrow, would you expect everything to run smoothly? I actually do. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I go back to the bond market because, uh, for the most part, Bitcoin trades OTC, just like bonds do, um, on the back end. But it's also a lot more liquid. It's, um, it's, it's easier to transact in. Uh, so, so a lot of the infrastructure is in place and, uh, it, it is, you know, it is going to be very easy to launch, uh, this, this product when, um, when, when, when regulators say that it's finally ready to go. Um, so I, I don't really see any hangups uh, at the moment other than just, you know, continue to working through some of the uh, um, uh, disclosure language and uh, thinking through uh, how, you know, how shows will be created and, and, and redeemed. Uh, but once that's done, um, I, I don't really see a whole lot of hangups. All right. So uh, I'm going to try to pin you down here, but you have a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, if you want to pass on this. Uh, so what, what are you expecting time-wise at this point, just in terms of the SEC potentially allowing these products to come to market? As we sit here today, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, um, I, I would say sometime after January 2nd, and um, who knows after that. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> All right, but, but not before the end of the year. You'd be surprised by that. Uh, I'd, I'd be very surprised. All right. Um, I, I know the consensus or the assumption is that the SEC is going to allow multiple spot Bitcoin ETFs to, to, to launch at the same time. And so I, I guess I have a couple of questions here. Number one, 
Do you think that's fair? Like, is that the best way to approach this? We talked about how Valkyrie filed back in, in 2021. Uh, is it fair to just allow everybody to come to market at the same time? And then two, assuming that does happen, I'm curious how you will attempt to compete. Because I've said uh, multiple times, and this isn't anything enlightening, this is going to be absolutely cutthroat competition, right? You have some of the biggest names in asset management competing here. There are well-known crypto fund players competing here. This is going to be wild. And, and so how do you compete? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think just like in, in everything else, you know, I, 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 I grew up in the, uh, the Guggenheim business where we were a relatively small asset manager, but we were really good at what we did. Uh, we had to compete with the likes of Pinto and Lanto and BlackRock. And, um, you know, these were obviously very large players, and uh, we, we competed on expertise and performance. Um, I, I, I think that's how, that's how Valkyrie does too. You know, I mean, most, most of the Valkyrie team uh, came over from Guggenheim. We're, we're, we're really, I feel like we're really good on the, um, on, on the active management side. Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of TradFi expertise, and we also have uh, a deep history in, in, um, in Bitcoin as well. So uh, I, I think we kind of, I think we come in as the, the niche um, asset manager that's, that's, that's good at, that's good on the active side and they're, ex, and they're experts in crypto. And what about the timing of everybody coming to market at the same time? Do you agree with that approach if that is in fact what happens? I, I think that's what's going to happen. Um, yeah, you know, do, do I necessarily agree with it? I, I, you know, look, putting myself on the other side of the table, if I were the SEC, uh, it, it's, it's really the only way that they can do it. Uh, it. It definitely puts some of the larger... Um, the larger shops at an advantage, uh, but, uh, but but I think you know we're not we're not too worried about it. Um, you know the other really way that, that that I think that it could be done is an order that the S ones were filed, mm -hmm. which which would actually put us second, which would be great. Uh, but it puts Bayonet first, um, and that's that's a fair way to do it as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, there's no question the SEC is in a tricky spot here. I, I would say largely uh, created of their, their own doing, in, in my opinion, with the way this is all played out. But I'm not sure there's a great way to do it. Um, I see pros and cons on both sides. And to your point, one concern I have is that if everybody launches on the same day, I, there's no question that favors the largest issuers. And, and not to talk about specific issuers, but let's take Grayscale, for example. If they're able to come to market on the same day as everybody else, they're showing up to the party with $25 billion in assets. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have that opportunity. It's just I don't know that um, this is a situation where the SEC is not playing kingmaker if, if you're allowing everybody to come to, to market on the same day. But, you know, because th this has been going on now, what, we had the first uh, spot Bitcoin ETF filed by the Winklevoss twins back in 2013. It's like, you know, how far back do you go on the S1s? It's a tough situation, but I agree with you. If you look at some of the first filers in this category, there are uh, several what I would call crypto fund native firms that were first here. And now we have some of the traditional um, ETF issuers that got involved later that are going to be able to come to market at the same time. In my opinion, I guess if I if I had a, to you know, make a decision on this, I do think it sets a somewhat bad precedent because moving forward, if there's some sort of novel ETF filing uh, and, and I'm a larger ETF issuer, I just wait for those novel filings to come in 
And then uh, when I see something I like, I go, oh, yeah, you know, I'll file for that, too. That's a great idea. And then I'll go to the SEC and say, hey, remember the precedent you set with spot Bitcoin ETFs? That was a novel product coming to market. These need to be batched up just like that one was. And so I can see where this could create some some issues moving forward. I think there's a misalignment of incentives. But I'll get off my, my soapbox on that. I'm a, <laughs> so many agree with me on, on some of that. Uh, I, I agree with you on a lot of that. It, 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 will, create some, uh, it will create some interesting precedents if, if that's the way it goes. Um, all right, a few minutes left. Last I checked, I, I hope I'm not wrong on this, Valkyrie had not yet put their hat in the ring for a spot Ethereum ETF. Uh, is that something that you might consider? Because as I mentioned at the top, you do offer a combined Bitcoin and Ethereum futures ETF. So any thoughts on a spot product? Yeah, you know, I, 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 don't, think we're, um, I don't think we're committed either way on, on that. Uh, you know, we're really focused. I mean, most of us are... Are, are Bitcoiners, and we're really focused on on the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, not 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 to say that we don't, um, you know, that we won't look at something like that in the future. But we're just uh, right now we're all in on Bitcoin spot and, and doing everything we can to make that work. And I should have mentioned the ticker symbol on that uh, Valkyrie ETF is BTF. That's the Valkyrie Bitcoin and Ether Strategy ETF. Um, all right, Stephen, lastly, before I let you go, Valkyrie actually has one of the best-performing ETFs out there this year, which is the Valkyrie Bitcoin Miners ETF. And I would say that also has one of the best ticker symbols uh, you'll find anywhere, which is WGMI. So uh, excellent work on that. Do you want to offer a quick snapshot on that ETF and, and just explain why it has performed so well? Yeah, you know, um, you know, probably, probably most of it's locked, but um, you know, we, we do actively manage that ETF, and so what we what we attempt to do is uh, sift through uh, a lot of the miners that are publicly traded, and you know, we're, we're trying to take the good ones and eliminate the ones that are bad. Doesn't mean that we uh, we won't fail uh, on either end of that, but uh, so far it's been successful, um, you know, from our perspective. But, uh, but, you know, and I think that is a big difference here. You know, a lot of the other similar products are very passive in nature. And, uh, the, the, and Bitcoin is very cyclical. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're in the bear market part of the cycle, which is about every four years, um, you're going to have some, some miners that go into bankruptcy and the fail. And uh, so I think it's really important for a product like this to, uh, to have active management. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate you joining me this week, and I, I really appreciate your candidness in all of this as well. I know it can be difficult to talk around some of the stuff when we're talking about live filings, and clearly this has been a sensitive uh, area all the way around. So I, I appreciate you uh, coming on and, and discussing this. I can't wait to see how all of this turns out with uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. I just remain fascinated by this. <laughs> best of luck uh, to you and the Valkyrie team, and again, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, man. I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. That was Stephen McClurg, Chief Investment Officer at Valkyrie. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Gabelli Funds. If you would like to learn more about Gabelli Funds ETFs, you can visit m.gabelli.com slash ETFs. Next week, I will be joined by State Street's Matt Bertolini, Really interesting topic. We're going to discuss three mistakes ETF investors made in 2023 and how they might correct those mistakes heading into the new year. Until then, have a great week, everyone.